because we are undercurrent. I'm Wasir. I'm Adriana. And you're listening to Undercurrent, a podcast complementing the Undercurrent art space at 70 John Street in Brooklyn. We'll start out by mentioning that Jennifer Slavin Harris's show, the current show, The Missing Piece, will be open until December 29th. And the gallery hours are Thursdays through Saturdays, 1 to 7 p.m. The next show will be Travis Leroy Southworth's I Am a Portrait, and that opening is on January 10th. As always, check out undercurrent70.org for updates. So today we have a two-part episode, but before we get to that, uh, Adriana, what's new with you? I saw a great exhibition in Brooklyn um, at Gymnasium Gallery, uh, Richard McDonough, an anniversary, which opened October 26th. It was an amazing show of his paintings, sculptures, and just really beautiful work. Great. Yeah. But it's closed already, so people can't go see it. Oh, or? fuck. Yeah. That's all right. But now we'll have to add the explicit tag to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Because you swore. Oh, sorry. F- I'm sorry. That's all right. Should I do it again? No. Okay. I mean, if you want to. I recently saw... I think mean, it's funnier if you don't. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Are you going to ask me? Yeah. Monsieur, what have you seen that's new and exciting? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Uh, I was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I met with my dissertation advisor who recommended a graphic novel to me, Nick Ternasso's Beverly, Ooh. Uh, which came out in 2018. And Nick Ternasso is a younger uh, writer. Beverly is Nick's um, debut. And it's Absolutely astonishing in the sense that uh, for an artistic perspective, Beverly, you may think if you know Chicago well, you may think that it's about the sort of section of Chicago where all the cops and firefighters live. Mm-hmm. And it is and isn't about that. Uh, Dernasso is from Palos Hills, which is a uh, southwestern suburb of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And just the uncertainty of the geography, the drawing is extremely spare. Wow. Um, very, very, very little line work very used tech, yeah. at all and as a result the people are are very illegible in terms of age in terms of presented gender like all these kinds of things is very very tricky but the material is extremely deeply intimate and tied in with the people you don't even know how old they are and from the context you get the sense that they're like high school college and it's this kind of being lost when you're when you're 18 19 20 and not knowing what's going on and not knowing what like your sexuality is about and not knowing about how you should react to like these new feelings that you have and Mm -hmm. thinking that just getting you know being a high schooler getting drunk with the community college kids you know that's your identity well yeah and that 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 satisfies whatever sort of longing or lack you have you know that kind of purely sexually driven whatever interest so that was really cool and i from like an artistic point of view the minimal illustrations must really serve this very fully formed like written material to add a universality to 
the reading of it, which is so important for graphic novels, I feel like. Yeah, that's the thing is the Beverly-ness uh, locates it very much in the southwestern Chicago milieu. But at the same time, it it still has its universality comes out of the fact that the drawing is so spare that you can't even read like the class positions of the people. Right. And you find out that some people are rich and some people aren't and you can't tell. Whereas in like a movie or something, you would. Great. So that let me great. here. Let me show you some of the pictures. So so now that you've seen some of the pictures, Algerana, what do you think of the the Dernasa work? I mean, they're so minimal that it's so easy to project one's own story onto them, which exactly. is really fitting because of the the story being this period of adolescence in which you don't really know who you are, and there's this great fear of the unknown. Yeah, and you can be manipulated in having who you are projected upon you, and but and also you feel that other people's ideas of who you are is the most important thing and that you have to live up to their fantasies about who you are. Right. And then you were saying the pictures, they look like... uh, They look like the posters you see around like school for if somebody is choking. This is what you do. These very minimal, very funny and universal... Or like the plain uh, safety exactly. cards. Yeah. Exactly. I always like looking at those because I, I try to figure out if they're hand-drawn or done by a computer, and it really doesn't matter because they're so delightful. Mm-hmm. All right, great. So we have, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we have a two-part podcast today. And Adriana, do you want to tell us about the meat of today's episode? And now, the meat of today's episode. <laughs> Fantastic. In the first part, we play a conversation Mosier had with artist Ashley Jonas at the opening for the Afterlight show back in October. And in the second part, we have a conversation about the Afterlight show, the first group show at Undercurrent with its curator, Diana Mattis, who is also a director here at Undercurrent. So, Adriana, you flagged my conversation with Ashley as especially meaningful when we were putting together the Afterlight uh, show. Why, why was it so meaningful? I felt like because it was a conversation that felt very in the moment for you two, it needed to be brought to Diana, it needed to be brought to the attention of everybody because it's such a poignant and important conversation that the art world should hear this conversation of like well this idea of viewability and the privilege of being vulnerable and being able to come into shows and look at art and have the capacity to let one's guard down and kind of throw away more these like pressures of being very intellectual in lieu of a more emotional reading of it mm-hmm. yeah and did the did the conversation with ashley did it when you listen to it, did it sort of change your view of the show in any way? or It did. I think it it was important in the fact that here Undercurrent, we are an artist, primarily an artist-run space. And so it's really valuable to hear from artists about how they navigate the everyday and how they navigate showing their work and presenting it to the public. Um, and Ashley so eloquently addressed issues that she feels she faces and just artists in general in this really difficult to navigate world sometimes. Great. So now we'll play that conversation with Ashley. So I I went to the Guggenheim today and the show that was up, I'm I'm blanking on the artist, but there was um, one of the few female artists (laughs) that was shown uh, in the exhibition uh, at the Guggenheim was up. It was a wall-based piece, but it was uh, slightly three-dimensional, so you could look onto the side of it, and it was built up, and 
and it, I, I peeked around the side and there was this one part sort of spaced in the back and it and it said it had written in graphite sorry just the word sorry so it was this I had to really investigate all of the entirety of the piece that I felt like I had liberty to investigate in order to see the small amount of vulnerability and it just said the word sorry on it and I think that that like resonated with me. That vulnerability is there but only after a lot of effort because it it suggests in a way that the work can stand as a as a barrier and not completely as something that you see through that you have to work your way around to see that sorry you don't just see it in the front because if you saw it in the front maybe it would feel insincere or something like that yeah I sort of think a lot about viewership and the way that we come to work and the unfortunate idea that either we get it or we don't get it or that there has to be some sort of instantaneous relationship or understanding of the work. I don't think that's how viewership works or should work at all. I think that viewership is about being be, yourself being vulnerable, seeing something that is not coming from your own perspective in any sort of way and just like letting that happen. And you're allowed to project whatever you want to project onto that thing. I see this, I feel this, this reminds me of this. And that's like, that's where true, like that's where real connection comes from looking at work. It's like, here's this thing that someone's created. I don't know why or how or, or, or what, but if I'm allowing myself to just exist and be without needing to like get it, then that's that's sincere and that's real and I think that that can transcend like our cerebral shit and become more transcendent and emotional no I think that's right and there's a that's something that came up a lot specifically today because of this experiment of of walking around and recording people and asking not just the artists but the assembled audience the assembled public to talk on tape and Many said things like, I have nothing to say, I don't understand this, I, I have no way of evaluating this work, um, and were some variation of shy or felt incapable of finding a way of talking about it. And I wonder if that's, I mean, I expected that, but I wonder if that's partly, if, like you're suggesting, that's a response to refusing to allow that kind of vulnerability. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> so like when we walk into art spaces, nobody's seen this before. Nobody has any true comfortability with the works that are on the wall. So to not know and to be comfortable in not knowing is very foreign. That is not how we normally operate but it'd be way freaking cooler if everyone was more comfortable just saying like well I don't know but that doesn't mean that I can't move through or past the not knowing. I suppose that it takes a certain kind of privilege of being privileged to make yourself vulnerable that it takes certain kinds of life situations or something like that and that comes out in coming here to begin with then letting yourself be affected in some way by the work and then being willing to talk about it on tape mm -hmm. and i think that these this is a this is a tricky thing because 
the audience keeps winnowing. It's a smaller and smaller number of people with every step. So it's, I wonder the degree to which this is a challenge for the artist to try and make, to try and lessen that kind of privilege, to make that vulnerability more accessible, to make the work, to make the public more okay with feeling vulnerable so that they feel like they actually have a valuable means by which they can interact with the work. I mean, I've actually been talking to my partner about this very same thing in the last couple of uh, days because uh, that's a lot to ask of an artist as well. <laughs> so the beauty of having someone uh, or the beauty of having curators, the beauty of having uh people that want to run spaces, that want to make shows, is that those people have the platform to talk about the work that maybe the artists don't even have the words for. Like, I speak in this visual language, and so now I'm also asked to speak in the verbal language, and I'm also asked to speak in the written language, and while, yes, me, myself, I, I like, eat that shit up, and I really want to do that, that's not the case for every artist. So, People that are advocates for artists, people that really believe in supporting artists and supporting their practice and supporting their mission of making new things, those are the people that we need to, like, say thank you to. Like, thank you, you know, like, thank y'all for having this space to be the, for lack of a better word, like, hosts or the advocates for, you know, folks that are making things that don't necessarily have that energy within them. That's a good way of thinking about it, I think, in the sense that you're right, it's a ton to ask from the artist, that the artist uh, try, to make, try to make concessions to whatever barriers exist for the, for the viewership, but that who manages, who manages those barriers, that would be precisely the curators and, and those people who figure out ways that they can take work that may require a lot of they can present the work in a way to manage, massage those barriers, to lower that the energy involved for the reaction to start. And I think that this space kind of works reasonably well with that because it, it's, it's a little bit off the beaten path and it's kind of its own little thing. And it, I don't know, obviously I'm biased, but it, it, uh, it is very much invested based on the people that I invite my friends who aren't necessarily big art people to come here and see it and without any kind of not, you know, I'm not trying to get them to come here to buy works or anything like that. It's just come on by. You're around. Have a glass of wine. Um, so I don't know like a ton, ton, ton about this space, but I'm going to make the assumption that you're all artists that run the space. I'm not. I'm a librarian, but the others are all artists. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the thing about um, like an artist runs. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna call you an artist. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that because I like just in having a conversation with you, it feels like you're in the pursuit of trying to find some uh, like universal truths or some some sort of like underlying underlying truths. So I feel like that's totally an artist thing to do. <laughs> But that's the beauty of like an artist-run space is that we, uh, you clearly have an understanding of the creative process and the practice of like trying to figure something out, and that's better than <laughs> someone who doesn't have an interest in that process or that discovery or that sense of 
like wonder or piecing something together that was seemingly very far apart. The space makes things easier for the artist because there's a trust or something like that that these that the vulnerability goes both ways. The the viewer has to be vulnerable, but also the artist is clearly opening up a vulnerability by showing this kind of work that's spoken in a language that people aren't used to, that people don't know how to understand, and that's just put out there and left for interaction that can take any manner of unpredictable form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, through this process, like Dinah that curated this show, I've felt nothing but support. And we've, you know, emailed each other back and forth about the works, and I've been I've been given the opportunity to think more kind of acutely about the specific sculptures that I've made because we've been having conversations about like, well, oh, I'm thinking about this piece, but I'm also, also thinking about this piece, and, you know, this piece might relate to this other thing that I'm thinking about before, and so it's just allowed me to unpack some things, and that's because she's, like, really caring about what's going in the show. Yeah, that's, uh, yes, she she did a good job, I think. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, thank you very much. I guess this yeah. is uh, this is good for now. So thanks again. All right. Thank you. <laughs> that was the clip of Monsieur talking to Ashley Jonas, who was included in the Afterlight exhibition curated by Dinah Mattis. And here is the curator herself talking about her experience curating Afterlight. Dinah, I wanted to commend you on a beautiful show, a big part of which comes from your understanding of the artistic practice, as you are also an artist yourself. I think artist-run spaces like Undercurrent are so important as they holistically examine the artist, deal with the work in real time, and all its morphing and changes. How do you feel your artistic practice aided you in your curatorial work in the show? I approach a lot of problems, which I can see as art making one of them, uh, teaching, and I think curatorial also fits into that, but I approach them all as a series of information or bits of material and I have to somehow organize it so that it could make sense to a group of people, uh, to an audience. When I'm teaching, it's relatively easy because I know my age group. Uh, in my own studio, I can recognize these sorts of alphabets or symbols or icons that the audience reads, right? The public can read. They can understand that language. And I think that sometimes when you're dealing with a group exhibition where you have uh, many different artists who are coming at their work from disparate places and different voices, um, their work is varied quite a bit. So putting that together into a group show, that becomes a little bit trickier because not only do I have that uh, to think about, I also have to think about Um, Again, that audience, from a curatorial perspective, I have to, with a group show, I have to really consider the disparate perspectives and the various voices and materials of each individual artist in addition to the audience. And because I do not recognize or I do not personally know everybody that's kind of 
going to be coming into the this exhibition and they've never maybe seen me curate a show um, they also they're going to have a little bit of um, it's going to be harder for me to gauge exactly how I meld that for them but I think that that's kind of the beauty of creating a group show with an overarching theme or a concept that you develop. So that's the way that, because you mentioned both teaching and and then your own practice, and Adriana asked about specifically like the art side of how you're doing things, but now I'm asking also about the classroom. So you say that in the classroom you know you know the age group of the people, so you can sort of predict a lessons pl- lesson plan against that. But it's also very much the same thing in that you're taking disparate sources of information made by different authors and combining it all together and trying to make a coherent whole out of it. So I guess my question is, how much of a difference actually does the age group thing make? And, and to what a degree is curating a group show radically different from teaching a course. I try and come to each course as if each student actually is has no knowledge of it. Um, so uh, although I did say an age group, I also am thinking it's somebody who is an adult or close to an adult's age because um, I do primarily teach like freshmen and upper level. But actually this semester I taught uh, a younger age group, which really allowed me to recognize that difference of the vocabulary. I was even selecting or defining more vocabulary that I might not choose to do so for an older age group. So um, when I say that age, I don't want to sound ageist. Um, and I, I should probably, you know, define that. So that's how I'm defining it. It's somebody, you know, 16, 17, 18 and up. To answer that question, I actually approach it as if they don't have any knowledge of it. Because even though I might uh, be introducing something to them that seems repetitive, I know that they're going to still glean something from it. If it's not, um, they will always get something from it, even if it's repetitive. Yeah, because that leans into what Ashley was then saying about how it's the curator and then perhaps also the educator's task of making, again, back on this, making these different sources of information legible and approachable and allowing someone who doesn't know anything to come to a space and be like, oh, okay, I don't know anything about art, but the curator did such a good job that now I can I can understand these pieces somehow. So after listening to what Ashley's remarks were, and I really appreciated it, I think she did a wonderful job of creating a summary of, you know, what vulnerability is from all sides. However, I think that there's a, not just a vulnerability, there needs to be a humility within the viewer that comes to a space. And I feel that this is really common that um, people have a tendency to not want to open up and talk about the work. And I really do believe that the more you try to engage with that, um, not just by yourself or one-on-one, but with another another human being, you start to realize that you can have your own perspectives. And it's not really about being right or wrong. It's really just being able to be open. So the humility from the viewer in the sense of being humble enough to be open 
and being humble enough to to approach something and say, I don't already know the answers that this work of art is, I don't already know the answers to the questions that this work of art is posing. There's a lot of fear when people don't know. Yeah, and I, I think also with ideas of viewership and the institution of art spaces, there is this inwardly directed expectation of oneself to be very analytical um, and have some profound reading of the work, which in many ways can end up creating this barrier between the work and the viewer. I mean, with a lot of the people you were interviewing at the show, the some of the default answers were, I really don't know, and I don't have enough like knowledge to speak to it. And you can go extremely anal- analytical and end up deadening the work and your relationship to it. In many ways, appreciating and mining the work's formalistic qualities can allow for a more personal and emotional connection to it, you know, become, as Ashley says, more transcendent and emotional. How do you feel yourself, you know, navigating that as a viewer yourself in the art world or I mean I think it's important to see as much work as possible Uh, I always advocate that especially if you live in a you know a large city like this where there's so much it's almost impossible to see everything but even in you know the most rural of places keep an open mind because sometimes there's a piece of art and you don't even recognize it so I think it's a part of that not knowing again like allow yourself that sort of I don't know, ability to be wrong um, about like, hey, I see that, you know, I see that the pile of trash over there. What is that? Does it look a little out of place? Does it look a little different? Like, but being being right or wrong about whether it's art or not, that's one thing, right? But really, I think if I go back, not from that transient place, I think that's not transient. Transcendent. Transcendent place. Thank you. If you go back to the idea of humility, I mean, that is about not being right or wrong when you're looking at the work. It's about coming to and recognizing that you have your own identity when you're reading the work, and then so does your your friend or whoever you're looking at the work with. And then on top of that, there can be a whole nother reading from the artist, and then you just being open to that. Also, Ashley touched upon the question of whether artists should bear that responsibility to have their work, make their work palatable or open up these channels of emotional vulnerability in people. What do you feel, is there a responsibility for artists to do that or? I think it's an individual basis. I think it's really dependent on um, what the intention of the artist is. For myself, I do. I make it a very big part. I think that it's very important that process, image, and material uh, have this sort of beautiful trifecta where they can augment the concept. And if they don't do that, then I'm not going to be interested. Um, However, there's a lot of different kind of artwork out there depending on why it's being created or for whom. And that's another big question. I I meet a lot of artists who are not interested in exhibiting their work, you know, and there are a lot of artists who don't realize they are artists. That word artist, by the way, it's like a cultural thing as well, cultural phenomena. So that might also play into it, like what is an artist? In the sense of that we we are culturally programmed to think about that there are people who are who are artists as their vocation and that's their job and that's what they make their living from, et cetera, as opposed to understanding that an artistic practice is part of every, could conceivably be part of every person's life and just occupies a certain space and you, you do something with that or not and that's okay. Correct. And there's um, also a lot of, actually, there's a lot of uh, discourse revolved around this, but there are certain conditions as well when we see that make us recognize when 
what we think is art. Like being in a gallery. Being in a gallery, something hanging on a wall, something on a white wall. There's a lot of room when we see art in that sort of box. Whether it's good or bad, I mean, that goes back to that idea of keeping the magic there and looking for that silver lining. And that's why, you know, you keep your eyes open all the time when you're walking around um, because you just never know. You talk about how you personally in your own work are mining that relationship. No, not mining, but you're you're very aware of that relationship to the viewer and what they're going to pick up on or not or kind of taking that into account. But I was wondering with this undertaking, how that changed or did it stay the same? Because there's new challenges added to it when you're kind of directing the viewership in, in a certain way, which is primarily a role of a curator. Yeah, so when it comes to that in the space, you also have a lot of the aesthetics involved with how they're bouncing their eye around. And I hate to say it, there's a lot of gestalt principles. So being able to, you know, descend the staircase and immediately recognize, you know, a cat, something that's really comforting. Um, Descend the staircase here at Undercurrent, sorry, right? Yes. Okay. I, I didn't know if you were still I was the imagining. gestalt principles no, no, or no. not. Okay. So when you're seeing that cat, I mean, there's this, again, there's this sort of moment of you're reminded of home and I want I wanted people to be comfortable so, um, and some people are not cat people, but a majority of the people that walked in, you know, or they were terrified of it. And maybe that was something else that was a wonderful like moment, but it was something that was, it's very recognizable in New York City. Almost everybody has a cat. And if you don't see that cat, you know that cat exists. Having that relationship of uh, the symbol, right? of this being that almost doesn't, you know, cats are very alien. They almost don't belong on this planet. They're very bizarre creatures. So after you see the cat, you walk in and there are multiple other pieces, floor and wall pieces, and there's different shape, color, material, imagery that are playing off of one another. And that sort of repetition is what really allows you to move around that space. Just, I want to jump in here and say that the cat is Sar Shemesh's Louie which was one of the pieces in, in Afterlight. It also connects back to um, a lot of the work that you hand-selected for the show. For example, Ashley Jonas's sculptures, which, though one might not understand the meaning of immediately, the materials are immediately recognizable as quotidian objects that they see in everyday life, along with Megan Stray's assemblage pieces on the wall that use fabric and nylon. Yeah, she uses all sorts of... She uses a lot of different materials, and she's actually creating simulacrum um, through processes of some of those materials back on them. So they almost become like meta pieces. Patterns on patterns. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, even some of her, a lot of the objects come from like the dollar store. So I think that's what the material is that you're thinking. And even overlapping with um, Michael's wall pieces, they all seem to blur the line between sculpture and 2D, which is something I think was really successful that you did, this kind of the meshing of the two of them in a way that's not immediately recognizable. Yeah, it's it's interesting you um, bring that up, even with Michael's work. I had some, I was doing a walkthrough with um, some students and 
they weren't even sure if they were looking at Michael's what the, what Michael's pieces were, the imagery that he was depicting, and they're you know they're Venetian blinds, and a majority of us recognize what that is, but that will happen, and that's something that we can't control when that audience doesn't recognize that. Maybe it's a culture shock, you know, it can be a number of things, but that's where, that's where the, the humility is that they were willing to, you know, when I ask, what do you see here? And then they start to tell me and I say, well, do you know what Venetian blinds are? So now you have to introduce this entire history. And what's beautiful about it is when you start to unpack it all and you have somebody willing to, art becomes a win-win for everybody. Um, it's a win for the artist because they might not be there, but somebody's talking about their work. For me, it's a win-win because somebody's learning about it, and then I get to also maybe teach something um, that maybe they didn't see. And for the viewer, you know, it's a win-win as well because they're expounding on what they're able not just to observe, but what they're able to see. Right, so I think it's nice that so you're tapping into what Ashley was saying about maybe the artist doesn't have this responsibility, but also since you are a teacher, you come from this place of education. You come from this place also of, you know, enlightening others to new concepts. And so there's a delicate gray area between the black and the white. That's really interesting. The current show, Jennifer Slavin Harris is the Missing Piece. And when we, we talked with her, we talked a lot about, about how like she literally picks up trash or picks up things that have been discarded on the, on the street. In Afterlight, you had uh, at least two artists actively working with, with these kinds of ideas in the sense of, uh, as Adriana mentioned, both Ashley and uh, Ashley Jonas and Megan Stray both were repurposing either thrown away or discarded or extremely cheaply available mass-produced type stuff to to repurpose it into some kind of artistic practice. Rodney Dixon's Shantytown also was a, a kind of comment on relationship between disposability and poverty, either in, in Asia but also here in New York. And then, and the first show, Carl Lee's had video installations of a house literally being torn down. So I'm asking if this is kind of undercurrents thing, sort of this this uh, aesthetic of being interested in the in the slow de-evolution of things, the sort of repurposing of commodified use, a kind of upcycling type thing, maybe a little bit, or if this is if these are trends that are more present in the art world that I don't know about, or if this is kind of something that has grabbed you and the other directors in planning what to do with this space. So you are very perceptive. I'm very aware of this, actually. However, it's not something that myself, Julius, or Laura discuss uh, openly. I think that it's just our aesthetic. However, I also need to comment that it's the times. It is what I think a lot of contemporary art, although I don't necessarily see it, I think it's really valid and we're providing that platform because we are undercurrent and these artists are phenomenal at the work they make and that they've created and what they've accomplished and they continue, 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 even if they haven't been given a platform in the past. And so their work is valid beyond some of the work that I, I, I have seen that I, I don't think, they don't show the detritus. They don't show 
any of the um, upcycling. There's a lot. I mean, assemblage, it's innate within it. But you hit the nail on the head. Have we talked about it openly, me between all the other co-directors? No. But um, I'm glad you brought it up because the next show actually deals with digital detritus. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So the next show is Travis Leroy Southworth. He is a photo retoucher who literally and figuratively saves all of the digital detritus from what he's working on as his day job. So like the the zits or whatever that he brushes out of photos? Exactly. Hair, blemishes, color corrections. Landscapes of the human body. Basically. But dust and things that show up on lenses too, so... Yeah, so it'll be really um, fantastic. What's Um, the name of the show? I Am a Portrait. And that opens on January 10th. Correct. There's only been one group show here at Undercurrent so far. And I was wondering if this is the kind of thing that you are planning on doing more of in the future or at, at Undercurrent or something that you specifically want to do more of? Is there Are there benefits that come with doing a group show? You know, that's a really, that's a tricky one. A lot of people have different opinions about group shows and solo shows. This group show uh, took me probably about two years before I really saw its full um, its full vision. I actually didn't even meet the last artist until uh, probably six months before I put it together. So it's not easy to put together, I feel, a group show that is well curated. And do you find that as an artist, there's backlash to having these multi-roles or kind of working in multiple fields I mean, to to a lot of people, it's like uh, it just shows that you can be very interdisciplinary in how you approach art. But has do you get backlash? Do cur- artists who curate get backlash? Again, it's it just varies. Everybody has a different opinion about it, and I've heard. I feel like ev- maybe I haven't heard every shade of gray about it, but um, I feel if you have something that you want to share and you want to help support, um, and you want to, you know, bring people out, then you should do it. Uh, I really think it's an, it's a case by case. Uh, I'm, I don't consider myself a curator by any means. I love to write. Do I call myself a writer? No. But when it comes to putting a show together and creating, um, an essay about the show, uh, that was something that for me was I was really passionate about, so I had to do it. Thank you so much for sitting on this couch with us and discussing your show. Thank you, Dynamatis. Thanks for having me, guys. So thank you, Dyna, for talking to us here at Undercurrent. And Adriana, so what, what surprised you about what Dyna said? I think it was really interesting to hear from Dyna, who I know as an artist, speaking about her experience curating a show and how kind of the things she thinks about in her own personal practice she applied with uh, this group show so thinking about material thinking about how it's going to be relating to you know even semiotics and how people are going to be viewing the work is was really enlightening super yeah I also really like the underscoring the idea of humility so in the conversation with Ashley she and I talked about vulnerability a lot and it's it's interesting that Dinah leaned instead on the sense of humility. Thinking about those differences is something I'm not ready to speak about now, but maybe useful 
for future reflection. Definitely food for thought. So that's the show for today. And as always, you can find out more about Undercurrent at undercurrent70.org, which includes links to Undercurrent social media profiles and to this podcast archive. And it also includes a link to donate to Undercurrent the art space. They could definitely use your money if you are looking to give them some. Leave us a review, like, and subscribe to the podcast. On behalf of Undercurrent and 1984 Products, I'm Adriana. And I'm Wasir. Happy holidays and have a safe, happy Happy new year. year.